Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. plot recap then of the glorious scott i should explain actually before i start this recap is that i don't write it down this is just me talking for my memories of the story um before we go into detail so um if there's lots of erms and oh i've forgotten to mention this then that that's why i prefer to do it this way the glorious scott begins with <coughs> holmes and watson in their traditional place really in 221b baker street um, which is a bit of a break from the stockbroker's clerk, where Holmes actually left the house uh, in the opening scene. And they're sitting down, they're having a chat about old times, about um, particularly Holmes' university days. And at that point, there is no mention whatsoever which university Holmes goes to. But anyway, he's talking about the time um, he was going to chapel and a uh, a dog froze onto his ankle, a term I really like. <clears throat> and... Um, uh, the dog's owner was a man called Victor Trevor, who became a friend of Holmes's when he, he visited to make sure he was okay. Um, and um, after a while, Victor Trevor extended an invitation to go to visit his father's estate in Donnythorpe in Norfolk. There is no place called Donnythorpe in Norfolk. Um, talk soon turns to the undergraduate Holmes's ability to um, deduce things just by looking at people, observing them. Um, this is before, um, obviously, he's made a career or even decided to make a career of uh, of his great skills. Um, and he just and he finds various things out about him. He says, you know, you've gone in fear of an attack, and he could tell that because he'd spotted his um, cane was weighted with lead or what have you, and makes a few things about, uh, you know, I can tell you've been to Australia, you've been, you know, you've used your hands a great deal because of the calluses, etc. And then he says you've been intimately acquainted with somebody whose initials were J.A. And then very, very keen to lose all trace of them. He deduces that from the um, the badly um, stained tattoo he has in the crook of his elbow. Um, there's much laughter to begin with when he does this, but once he mentions the J.A. thing, um, the old man basically just sort of glares at him and actually sort of almost faints. I think he might actually faint, come to think of it. Um, and has to be revived and makes up some nonsense about, oh, you know, you're absolutely right. What a gift you've got. Um, you know, the ghost of old loves are the, the longest surviving ghosts and what have you, which, of course, Holmes is a little bit embarrassed about. But what is more interesting is the fact that he says, you know, this is, that's your skill. That's how you're going to make a living. And it's the first time that Holmes has even considered making a living from his uh, skills in um, analysis and deduction which of course he does, um, but he's actually more concerned about the fact that you know his host, and he's a, you know he's a good guest. He's actually really very very concerned that he's you know he's offended the old boy. 
Um, Home decides actually have to, to leave for a while because although things are very, very cordial, you know, there's a bit of a wary eye upon him because, you know, he's, he's obviously touched a nerve somewhere. So um, he decides to leave. And the day he leaves, um, they're sitting in the garden in, in chairs and an old man comes shoveling in. Um, and um, Holmes pretty much recognises straight away that he's a he's a, a sailor. And um, at, at first, um, Victor, um, Mr. Trevor Senior, as we have to call him, not Victor Trevor, he's the son, Trevor Senior decides uh, that he's a bit concerned about um, about all this. Doesn't really like uh, what this man's doing here, and um, sends him away. You know, says go and get yourself something to eat. Yeah, um, of course I remember you. And turns out they're all shipmates together or something like that. Um, and then the old man goes back into the uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> Trevor Senior goes back into the house and is found dead drunk a bit later on. Holmes goes home and he. Um, does this go back to what he was doing beforehand? Um, probably working on his university degree from the university that doesn't exist or is never named. Uh, we'll be coming to that. And uh, gets a telegram from um, Trevor Senior saying, um, can, you, can you please come back? Things are a bit of a crisis here. And when he gets there, he's picked up at the station and um, uh, Victor Trevor tells him that the old man's dying. He's, 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 he's had some sort of telegram or letter or something and um, he's having major, major issues and he's sort of collapsed and, you know, he may not return. In fact, that is, he actually dies um, during the course of this journey. But more pressing towards um, um, Victor Trevor's um, problem is the fact that the old man who came to visit him, his name is Hudson, is basically just eating everyone out of house of home. He's rude to the staff. He's getting drunk all the time. He's... He's um as, as as Victor calls him the dad. He's rude to the dad all the time. Actually, calls him the dad, and he's this is this isn't going well. And at one stage, he, Victor Trevor said, "Like you know, I would have turned him out of the room, or I would have beat him up if he wasn't like much much junior." Um, and uh, things came to a head when um Hudson decided said, said "I'm going to go and see our, our old friend Mister Beddoes down in Hampshire," which causes much consternation um with with um Trevor Senior. And um, I said, well, I haven't had an apology. And Victor says, well, no, I'm not going to apologise. You know, you've been revolting to, to us. Um, so he goes, he then gets um, uh, a telegram. The telegram that arrives has a very, very strange message, which is as follows. And this is nonsense. The supply of game for London is going steadily up. Headkeeper Hudson, we believe, has now been told to receive all orders for flypaper and for the preservation, preservation of your hen pheasant's life. Because that doesn't mean a thing to anyone, and it takes time a, a while to get it, and he starts, you know, doing the working out what that could possibly mean, and it turns out that every third word is relevant, starting with the, um, so things like hen pheasant, um, uh, and you know, um, fly paper, head keeper, or well, two of those terms are hyphenated. Hen pheasant isn't as uh, stated in the BBC Four version, but of course, what it comes up with is this: the game is up. Hudson has told all. Fly for your life. Now, just before he died, um, Mr. Trevor Senior was seen at his desk scribbling away, so he's obviously left some sort of account as to what all this is about. Uh, and it transpires that um, years and years and years ago, um, Victor Trevor was called James Armitage. I have a friend called James Armitage. Hello, Armo. And if you listen to this, uh, the initials, of course, JA, they've been um, obviously put on, uh, tattooed onto his, his arm at some point. And then um, covered up, um, and he was actually a criminal. He'd embezzled some money from the bank, and uh, and he'd been caught, and he'd been transported to Australia. 
on an old ship called the Gloria Scott, which wasn't really a prison boat. It was sort of a, an old Chinese rotting hull of a vehicle. Um, but anyway, they're going to Australia from Falmouth in Cornwall, and um, Armitage is talking to a, a, a prisoner who's next to him in the galley, uh, it turns out to be a man called Jack Prendergast, who really is the real deal when it comes to stealing stuff. He's got a quarter of a million quid stashed away, um, and he's bought off most of the crew, um, and including the, a very dodgy chaplain who clearly isn't a chaplain. And um, they pretty much start a pact together. It's all it's Prendergast's pact, but um, and then we get some guns aboard, etc. And they just wait for the right moment to which they can go and mutiny and take over the boat and go and do what the hell they want but not go to Australia for the next 30 years. That's something. Um, they nearly do it as well when someone discovers a pistol, um, a doctor discovers a pistol, and um, everything has to kick off, and suddenly there's a huge melee, there's shots fired all over the place, and the captain's killed, and all the people are killed, and um, it looks like they they finally taken over and everything's going to be okay. There are a few people left, and this is where Prendergast and Armitage, who becomes... Trevor Senior um, are um, at a bit of a a, a bit of a uh, impasse, shall we say? Uh, Prendergast wants to kill them, throw them overboard, shoot them, whatever. And Armitage um, um, stroke Trevor that has nothing to do with that at all. So they decide that basically there's going to make a small boat, put a few people in it, uh, including his friend Evans, um, who becomes Beddoes later on, and make their way somewhere off the coast of, coast of Cape Verde and Guinea and Senegal um, to make a bit of a getaway. As they're going away from that, when they're a good distance away, they see that the, the Glorious Scott has blown up. Um, something's happened between the, the, someone's set off the gunpowder, either by design or by accident. Um, so they go back and see if they can help some other people there. And they only find one man, who is, of course, Hudson. Uh, they're then picked up by a, another ship, the Hotspur, I think it was, um, called, which was on its way to Australia. Um, they arrive there as, of course, free men. And um, Trevor and Evans, Bedos and Trevor, Victor Trevor, of course, uh, sorry, in Armitage, um, make their money uh, in you know, mining, digging for, for gold, and they come back to the UK as uh, as, as rich men. Um, nothing really transpires after that, um, so it's not entirely clear whether Hudson did genuinely tell all, because there's no there's no great shock or there's no great story or scandal about what happened to this man, so... Um, so some people believe that um Evans, sorry, um Hudson has actually killed Bedos stroke Evans. Um, Holmes thinks it's the opposite because obviously because he talks about um shooting a lot and things like that, so he's an expert shot, and he probably he thinks he's probably killed um Hudson and gone off with lots of cash, never to be seen again. And that is a very very garbled version <laughs> of the uh Gloria Scott. Our guest this week to discuss the Gloria Scott is Nick Utekin. Nick joined the Sherlock Holmes Society of London in 1966 at the tender age of 14. He became the editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal 10 years later and stayed in that role for 30 years before handing over the reins in 2006. He's an investor Baker Street Irregular. In 1976, he published The Great British Barrow uh, and he's a master copper beachsmith of the Sons of the Copper Beaches in Philadelphia. He's published widely in the great pseudo-scholarly game, as Dorothy L. Sayers put it, and has a reasonable classic collection. He also owns a non-Sherlock Holmes original by Sidney Paget. In real life, again, Nick's words, uh, he was a Radio 4 producer and occasional presenter, we're going to be asking him about that, uh, until he retired, and Nick lives in Oxford.
Oh, and here's the big news. Basil Rathbone was his third cousin, twice removed. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on Sherlock from Adler to Amberley. Um, we've just read out your bio there. I've got so many questions, Nick. I've got so many questions. Firstly, can you talk us through your Basil Rathbone connection, please? Well, my middle name is Rathbone. I'm Nicholas Rathbone Utechin. My mother uh, was a Rathbone. Uh, if you look at the family tree of the Rathbones of Liverpool, uh, which is the sort of the where the Rathbones basically started, yeah. um, you, you, will, you, will, you will run it down via William the First, William the Second, etc. Move across a bit, uh, and then you will come to Basil Rathbone, who was level with my grandfather Reginald Blythe Rathbone, and level by two jots away or how, whatever makes third cousin, okay? Right. Uh, and I, of course, am the grandson of my grandfather, Ergo. So that I'm, makes it twice removed. I'm, I'm third cousin, twice removed, uh, of Basil Rathbone. But there is a tragic story associated, associated with this. Uh, I only uh, became properly aware of the importance of Basil Rathbone uh, when I, shortly after I had joined the society, and we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, but um, I wrote to him in early 1967. I found his address somewhere in New York City. And I said, hi, I'm Nick Utechian. I live in Glasgow. And I think I know that I'm your third. And I was expecting a wonderful letter back from Basil Rathbone. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe film scripts and maybe, maybe wonderful items that he had uh, used on the, on, on the film set. Or, or a part. Even uh, a part oh, somewhere. Even a part. Well, of course, he was looking for parts in those days. Of course, yeah. Sadly, and, and subsiding down. But the tragic thing is that he died three days after I oh, posted. Oh, okay. So I wish there was a, a better ending to this. I wish I could show you a letter uh, from Basil Rathbone. So my guess is, well, he undoubtedly never even received the letter. So all those dreams. Oh. But still, I mean, one of the, the opening questions we always ask everyone on this, in this question, I will ask you the same, is how you began to your love of Sherlock Holmes. But it doesn't seem to me like you had any any choice. Uh, it may be later on I was vaguely guided, um, although there are other quite well-known Rathbones that were more, more of a concentra concentration uh, on my mother's side of the family. <clears throat> Eleanor Rathbone uh, in Liverpool and things like that. Anyway, no, it was quite simple. Uh, when I was about nine, uh, my mother uh, got out of the library or gave me for Christmas the Hound of the Basketballs. And that's just a couple of years too early at least two years too early. And I was, I, I, I could read perfectly well, but I was just a bit frightened and it didn't quite work for me. So, you know, nothing happened there. And then far more astutely, my great aunt, Aunt Irene, gave me the good old, well, in those days, it was the essential, the John Murray omnibus right. edition of the short stories. Um, and there they all were, all 56 in, in that short stubby volume, no illustrations, just chunks of text. Um, and so I think that therefore takes me on to when I was uh, 12, 11, 12. Um, and I remember coming back from, from school uh, in, in summer's uh, evenings and uh, sitting outside and reading story by story uh, and just thinking, blimey, this is just absolutely yeah. great. But there has to be that further step. And the further step was, again, astute by my mother. Uh, she got out of the library, William Baring Gould's biography of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, that had been published in 1962. 
That was fascinating. But what was more fascinating was that in the index and the back pages of the book uh, was an address for something called the Sherlock Holmes Journal, published by the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. And I had absolutely, until then, no idea of such a society, let alone such a journal. Uh, and I wrote off uh, to the then editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, Lord Donegal, uh, in his posh address in Mayfair, um, and received a letter from one of the unsung heroes, actually, of very early Sherlockiana in this country, a Miss Cecilia Freeman, who was his uh, assistant. And she put me onto the society. I joined the society in 1966. Uh, the first uh, event I attended was that year or the 67 uh, film evening that the society put on. And it sort of grew like Topsy from there. Wow. So you really did have no choice because your family were sort of buffering you towards it. <laughs> Regardless. I think I was lucky that, I mean, I, I was brought up in a family uh, surrounded by books, uh, but uh, yeah. Sherlock, Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes did not. Uh, at that stage. Sadly, sadly, my mother or father did not have uh, first editions uh, no. of books or, or any single issue strand magazines or anything like that. Although my grandfather, that is Reginald Blythe Rathbone, later on clearly remembered, he was born in 1895, a rather good Sherlockian year. Yes, indeed. Yep. For, for all obvious reasons. And he clearly remembers buying strand magazines uh, at railway stations and reading them as you did then. That was exactly the point yeah. of it. Keep reading them on the train, reading them during the day and chucking them away. <laughs> so since then, sadly, I've <coughs> latterly spent a bit of a fortune <laughs> on buying single... That people throw, threw away in 1995. <laughs> that's, that's just not fair. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting you talk about, the, obviously, the, the Sherlock Holmes Society... Um, I don't know if you've read Stephen Fry's autobiographies, of which he has two, but he claims to be the youngest ever member. I, I, I haven't read the uh, autobiographies. I do know that he was a member at the age of 14. Yes. Um, I uh, was uh, exactly the same age. I was born in 1952 and I joined okay. in 1966, but I'm older than Stephen Fry. Oh, OK. Because um, uh, I'm always... Uh, um, pains when people you know I mean obviously Stephen Fry clearly knows his stuff about Sherlock Holmes I'm not going to pretend otherwise but I was always a bit annoyed when I watched him on Celebrity Mastermind and he got one wrong <laughs> and I was furious with that. Can I, can I interject something there I think Absolutely. That, uh, Stephen Fry actually claims to be the youngest person to present a paper to the paper. Oh is that what it is? Oh okay. London. And uh, in the in the forewords for the audio books uh, that, that he reads um, of, the, of the complete works. Um, he actually, the weekend he presented this paper resulted in him, in him being expelled from school. Yes. Uh, because he went uh, AWOL from his, uh, from his boarding school. He was meant to be gone Friday, come back Sunday, but he was actually missing for a week because he discovered the, the cinema, apparently, up in London. Yeah, I, I know this other story really well. It was 1971, which is one of the greatest years for British cinema. And he said he saw, I think it was Cabaret. I thought the Cabaret might be in later. Uh, the Godfather and The Clockwork Orange, and he went back and watched them all three the next day, and then all three the day after that, and well, came I, back and was. I certainly don't want to be contentious, and I certainly don't want to cross swords with the great Stephen Fry. <clears throat> As part of this year's seventieth anniversary of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, uh, I have just edited uh, a sort of a a book about it uh, called "This August and Scholarly Body: The Society at Seventy." 
And for that, I went through every single, and we've got it uh, laid out, every single meeting of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London from 1951 to God Save Us uh, last year when we had some um, COVID-related yes. Zooms. And I have to say that Stephen's name does not turn up as the presenter of a paper at an, I knew I was right. at an official meeting of the society. Now, that is a not national to... treasure making things up terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you to call me a national treasure. <laughs> um, no, uh, all I can say is that maybe he, 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 you know, tagged on. I mean, he certainly was a, a very young member of the society. He didn't stay a member very long, um, uh, but there is no actual official record of an official giving of a paper. So maybe to a group on a, on a, on a gathering, but it wasn't sort of recorded as such. <laughs> well, well, Stephen, if you want to come on at some point and discuss the Mazaran Stone, feel free. We will have you with, um, with, with our compliments. No problem at all. Um, we, we should, I've got so many questions. Can I ask you very briefly about Radio 4? Yeah, I just want to say one final thing about, okay. uh, about the Society of London, uh, which is that uh, I'm really quite proud of the fact that I, you know, only 10 years after joining, I became the editor of the Sherlock Holmes. I was going to say, yeah, that's a bit of a jump. And, and, di and did that for 30 years, uh, which, was, uh, which, which was quite fun, uh, until 2006, um, at which point it's an interesting thing, and, and I don't know how many of your listeners are members of the society or have read back copies of the journal or anything, uh, but it, it was quite an interesting time to do it from 76 to 2006 because there was an awful lot of stuff going on in the Sherlock Holmes world. I mean... Mm -hmm not least the Jeremy Brett uh, spike yeah, course, explosion, yeah. uh, which was for those days as big as the Cumberbatch yeah, show. Absolutely. Um, and it, it, it was quite an interesting time to be writing reviews of all the books and writing all the editorials and writing uh, and choosing all, all the contents uh, for each journal. And I began to think, hey, after 29 years, I thought, look, without sort of primping myself too much, I've been sort of vaguely relatively important in, in sort of leading a lot of people on for 30 years. If they happen to agree with me, great. Uh, if, they, if they think my reviewing is crap or to say so. And I thought, no, in the end, uh, I've done it for 30 years, let's stand down. And then we, we, we chose someone older than myself, who is now the editor of the journal. So not much pre-planning pre there. Anyway, sorry, I just interjected. Um, and, God, just, and God bless him for that. Absolutely. He's ready uh, Radio 4, yes. Um, it's, how do you go from, I mean, was it producer to presenter or presenter to producer? I know you, you were briefly well, I, a presenter, you say. Well, uh, I actually started on commercial radio. Uh, okay. I, was, I, I started at LBC when the first, it was the first commercial radio station yeah. in, in the country, in London. I joined it straight from university in 1973. Uh, I then left in 75. Then I became a freelance at Radio Oxford, the local station to where yeah. I live now, and then became staff there. And at local radio stations, the BBC, more often than not, you also present uh, okay. some, some sort of programme. Uh, um, and I ended up doing the morning programme, Oxford AM, for three or four years, and then got a job as a producer on the Today programme on Radio 4. Uh, right. and was lucky enough for those who remember those days in 1982 uh, to work with uh, the great uh, John Timpson and Brian Redhead, who were the, yeah. the prime presenters. I love Brian uh, Redhead. Uh, 
and then uh, I, I moved on to presenting any question, uh, producing any questions with Jonathan Dimbleby, famously <clears throat> or infamously once having to uh, chair it myself when the stand-in uh, presenter Nick Clark, sadly now dead, uh, couldn't turn up in time. Um, so that was a that was a good debut uh, on on Radio Four. But I did much more presenting later on when uh, I, shall we say, departed uh, the BBC. Okay. And went and went freelance uh, and worked for an independent production company called Testbed Production, selling stuff back to BBC Radio 4. And oh, I those, see. OK. For those who know that sort of life, I was up against in a market with people who were former friends and former colleagues of mine uh, under the extraordinary commissioning regime brought in by the utterly wonderful and brilliant. No, no, the awful John Burt. Uh, <laughs> who was uh, first Deputy Director General and then Director General. Uh, and under various schemes and machinations, uh, I, along with far more important and important people, uh, uh, left the BBC. I started, and then I, one was able to come up with um, interesting ideas to present. So I did lots of uh, programmes for uh, uh, about parliamentary stuff, the sketch writers in the House of Commons and the history of the Speaker of the House of Commons. Oh, OK. And, and various stuff like that, which could be put on to... Um, the Sunday night political program, and anyway, there we go. That's 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 basically. Um, oh, okay. I know I, you're a big fan I, of John Burt. I was uh, I, I was certainly more producer than presenter. So I mean, I mean, I may I may have got this wrong, but um, so were you producing during the infamous John Knott interview, or was that BBC One? I can't remember if that was radio or it was. Well, first of all, it was Robin Day, and it was on. It was television. Robin Day, because it was yeah. It was Robin Day. No, I watched it, but it was Robin Day on television. I thought, I thought you might have been in the building or something or, or that you were affected by that. Well, I had joined the Today. <coughs> the second night, I, I, in fact, on the Today programme, I joined it in April 82. And I can't get, remember the exact date now. Right. I, I shadowed a night shift just to see what it was like, because the Today programme is essentially run by, by the yeah. night shift who discard everything that the day shift <laughs> present you with yes. o'clock in the evening. And I remember going in with a reporter just to see him uh, doing a, a, a quick two-way, a recorded two-way, uh, with some distant correspondent reporting that there was some activity on a small island called South Georgia. Yeah, exactly, yeah. This was... um, and these, this was the beginning of the Falklands War. And then uh, a couple of years later, when I had the miners' strike, and so I was actually on the Today programme for five years during... A very, very interesting time for news yeah. and current. Um, I also went over to uh, Geneva for the first Gorbachev-Reagan uh, summit in 1985, uh, which was uh, which was good fun, very hard work. But uh, you know, gosh, one, one one has one has good memories of that, and then good memories of the other part of the BBC when I was working on more featurey stuff. And any questions was a great program uh, uh, in, in those days. John, I think we should stop bothering with Sherlock tonight and just ask Nick about questions about his career. This, well, yeah, all, all those newsworthy events that Nick was there for, you know, the Falklands. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole John Nett thing. I remember the John Nott thing when it happened. Um, this is the worst segue you're going to hear ever. Speaking of John Nott and the Falklands um, uh, in um, war. Um, speaking of maritime stories. <laughs> well done. Well done. I'm, very, I'm so proud of that. John, can we have that as a stinger, please, for a teaser? That's so good. Um, if, you're JM, if, you're, if your listeners could see me, I'm doing a thumbs down. <laughs> We're going to um, 
uh, we're discussing the Glorious Scott. It's not the adventure of Glorious Glory Scott. It's just the Glorious Scott, according to the, um, the the annotated Holmes. Big question is, and it's the easiest question: Did you enjoy it? Did or do I you? Enjoy it? I'm fairly sure you've read it a few times. I did, and I do, and I have found it a very fascinating story, which which is why I've chosen it. Because apart from uh, the Musgrave ritual, it is the only story of the. 60, 56 plus four long, uh, that um, is, tells you anything at all about Sherlock Holmes's early days. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it takes you out of the normal, delightful and brilliant as it is, coziness of the 221B and then the games of foot and all the stuff that we know and love uh, and enjoy the canon for. But there is so much uh, essential information. And don't forget, uh, that it was the story that Sherlock Holmes himself uh, says uh, led him to his life's work. Yeah. Um, and if it hadn't been for bumping into Victor Trevor uh, in the, at a university of this a, country, a, a uh, university, yeah. and, and, and getting to know Victor Trevor, and then going out uh, to Norfolk to Donnythorpe, where the story of the Glorious Scott. Uh, takes place, uh, then, you know, we can be fairly sure that maybe nothing further would have happened and Sherlock Holmes might have gone on to be a chemist, or as I suggest, I think he, he, I think he studied the classics, um, and, um, you know, we'd have, we'd, have, we'd have never heard of him. Um, it, it also is an extremely important example in the stories because it really is the only story in the entire canon where we hear that Sherlock Holmes had a friend an yeah. actual friend, because Victor Trevor was absolutely vital. Uh, I mean, he's very specific about it in the story. You never heard me talk of Victor Trevor, Holmes says to Watson. He was the only friend I made during the two years uh, that I was at uh, university. Um, it, 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 was, it was clearly more than just a friendship, uh, because it, it, it goes all the way through uh, the story, and it has a, an interesting end uh, and, and relationship uh, between Trevor uh, and Holmes. They were completely different people, obviously. Yeah. Trevor, Trevor is described as a, a hearty, full yes. of blood, fellow, full of spirits and energy. Uh, well, hardly what you quite imagine no. Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes uh, to, to, to have been. Um, I think that it is likely that the friendship was born out of the fact that they did both read uh, what used to be called literae humaniores, lit hum, which is basically Greek and Latin languages and history together with logic. And that is uh, an essential yes. element. Yes, uh, very true. Element. Um, now, obviously, chemistry, comparative chemistry, etc., was involved uh, uh, later on. I think there was also an enthusiasm uh, for uh, books. Uh, obviously, Sherlock Holmes uh, was a book person. He refers to a small but select library at Dolly. Yes, I like that. I really love that term. And we know that Trevor Senior knew hardly any books. Therefore, yeah. it, it will have been Victor Trevor. Because he was a digger. Uh, and I think also um, uh, uh, we know that Sherlock Holmes uh, was a boxer. Uh, Trevor, I, I think that probably Trevor, I'm guessing now, uh, that he, Trevor, also... Uh, boxed at university um, and they're very very firm uh, this 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 friendship during 
during the case of the Gloria Scott, and I'm sure we'll get onto the plot at some point, although it's quite a convoluted plot. Yes, it does stumble a bit. Tre Trevor is very, very specific, if I may quote briefly, uh, uh, when he picks uh, Holmes up uh, during the crisis of the case, he states unequivocally, and this is Victor Trevor talking, I'm so glad you have come, Holmes. I trust very much to your judgment and discretion, and I know that you will advise me for the best. Yeah. You don't say that to just a sort of no. a, a passing friend. And, no. and, and finally, on this on this friendship issue, <clears throat> at the very end of the story, and you can you can whip past it. Uh, we think I'm no chronologist. Chronologi I'm so sorry. I'm no chronologist. That's one of the reasons I'm not a chronologist. I can't say the word. Uh, um, um, he the story is probably. Uh, written down by Watson, certainly after 1887 and before 1891. It was published in The Strand in 1893. Yeah. Um, and whether or not it was in 1887 or 1891, this, the, the events at Donnie and the whole actual story of uh, the glory of Scott uh, probably took place uh, in uh, 1872, 1873, Holmes will have met Treasure, Trevor uh, yep. when, when this actually occurred. Nevertheless, at least 10 years later, what does Holmes say uh, at the very end? Uh, he says, duh, 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 let's get this exactly right. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, at the very end, uh, when he reports to Watson that the last he had heard of Victor Trevor was that he had gone to the tea planting uh, plantations in Terai, um, in northern India, where I hear, present tense, yes. where yeah. here he is doing well. Now that is intriguing. Even ten years after the events of of, of Trevor coming to talk to yeah. Holmes and blah blah blah, he has still kept up. We don't know how in some way. And and I suggest in an article I've a little article I've written about this that it's almost inconceivable uh, that during the great hiatus. Uh, after the Reichenbach incident, when Holmes nips off to Laza, I yeah. think he, it, it's not impossible that he'll have nipped down from... It's practically next door. It, absolutely. Nip down from Laza, go to the Terai plantations, have a drink with Trevor, uh, and, then, and then eventually return to London. So friendship uh, and um, a, a little light being shone uh, on, his, on his youth. But then, of course, uh, absolutely crucially... Uh, the uh, words uh, and the first major deduction that we know of in the whole uh, canon of the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, when he is at dinner with Trevor Senior and Victor Trevor, and then he does this, uh, you know, classic, as they turned out to be, Sherlock Holmes deduction. Yeah. Uh, Battles through them. You've boxed a good deal in your youth, yep. blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. You visited Japan, quite true. And you've been most intimately associated with someone whose initials were J.A. and whom you afterwards were eager to entirely forget. Most unfortunately, he split an infinitive. But there we go. Now, <laughs> and there speaks an editor, ladies and gentlemen. There speaks an editor. <laughs> there, there, there are, that, that is, first of all, a classic deduction. But what is absolutely crucial is what, of course, Victor Trevor says. Uh, uh, not Victor Trevor, sorry, Trevor Senior. Uh, says uh, that, uh, you know, I don't know how you manage this, Mr. Holmes, but it seems to me that all the detectives of fact and fancy would be children in your hands. That's yeah. your line of life, sir. Yes, you I love that line. 
and you may take the word of a man who has seen something of the world. So again, the, the, the story uh, is extremely important from that point of view. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I love the fact that um, Sherlock is, I mean, I mean, it's a huge moment when suddenly he dawns on him, this is my life, this is what I do now, forget organic chemistry, forget, and I think you, you've got a, a point about the classics because, of course, he quotes Horace earlier on. Oh, and, uh, Tacitus is there, Horace is there. Yeah. I mean, you know, we can all make our, our, our little deductions and we continue to play the great Dorothy L. Sayers yeah. game. Um, but, um, I mean, the main reason that I think uh, he read classics is that the person that I think um, someone called Arthur Conan Doyle based Sherlock Holmes on uh, yeah. was a certain Edmund Gore Alexander Holmes who went up to St. John's College, Oxford right. uh, and, and read Lit Hum. So it all falls into oh, place okay. from my point of view. <laughs> okay. Well, I, 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 I genuinely love the fact that he is... It's, it's almost that two things arrive at the same moment. One, he suddenly has this, this incredible moment of this is what my life is from now on. This is where I think he says in, in one of, I'm, I'm trying not to mention Burt Cools in every episode, but here we go. Um, in a Burt Cools adaptation, he says, I rely on this for my bread and cheese, he says later on. And um, while at the same moment, but he's also really concerned that he's upset him as much as anything. And I think over the years, he's less concerned about upsetting people. <laughs> if there's a deduction to be made. Well, absolutely. But I mean, let's not forget, he was the friend of the son. Yeah. It, is, it is the father who has just come up with this life-changing potential uh, experience. Yeah. Um, that is your all, line. All Holmes was doing was doing what his, well, I don't know whether we're going to call it deductions or inductions. That's uh, much yeah. of a, that's a long yeah. discussion. Uh, but he was doing what he knew best and what uh, he was able to impress, as we know from the Musgrave ritual, uh, that he had impressed other people at the university with these uh, little games of deduction. Um, and all he'd done was what he knew best, and he hadn't sort of actually thought uh, of, of the implications. Obviously, at the outset of the story, he has absolutely no idea uh, for the reasons that, uh, Trevor, that uh, uh, Trevor Senior had tried to get rid of the J.A. tattoo, was uh, anything other than maybe a former wife or a former girlfriend or, or, or whatever. Yeah. He had no idea what led behind that. Uh, therefore, when Trevor Senior collapses uh, on the table, yeah. uh, 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 this uh, will have come as, a, as a, an, an amazing shock. I'm duty bound at this point as well to say hello to my friend, James Armitage. It throws me every single time I read the story. So, Armo, I hope you're well. There we go. That's one listener guaranteed. I'm quite happy with that. Um, it is such a fascinating story. Um, for a start, people like maritime stories, particularly in the Victorian period. People like maritime stories because it is, I, I believe that book's very good. I mean, if we're not videoing this, we're going to come to this next, Nick. Don't you worry about that. Um, one of the big bones of contention with the Glorious Scott is Sherlock talking about his university and post-university days. And this has led many, many people to say, which university did he go through? And I've teased this on Twitter today by saying, let's ask the author of Sherlock Holmes in Oxford what his viewpoint is. Yes, I fear that was a little bit of a giveaway. Um, I brought this out in 1977, having had an article published in the Baker Street Journal, which is the journal of the Baker Street Irregulars over in the United States. And I made this, <laughs> clever, clever, uh, Edmund Gore Alexander Holmes 
uh, identification. And then what all the chronology, all the uh, university people who, the scholars who've got into this, what has been rather delightfully called uh, the controversy, um, uh, have tried to do is just work out, well, this bit suits me, this bit doesn't suit me, etc., uh, etc. Et the, the, the crucial moment, obviously, that is relevant from the glorious Scott, is that if Sherlock Holmes had not encountered a certain dog while going down to chapel one morning, i.e. Victor Trevor's dog, um, then he would never have met Victor Trevor, blah, 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 blah. Huge amount of discussion uh, over the decades, uh, with everyone stating absolutely firmly um, that uh, this was uh, making things really quite complicated because dogs were not allowed uh, in college, uh, either in Cambridge or Oxford. Therefore, one was to think that maybe the dog was uh, outside. Uh, I was able to make a, you know, it's not, it's not brain science uh, to point out that, as it happens, my old college, University College Oxford, there is a little lane called Logic Lane, which bypasses and, and runs straight through from the Oxford High Street down to Merton Street. Uh, and that is a thoroughfare and you can traverse from one part of the college to the other. And at that point, you can quite easily uh, encounter a dog. So, I mean, that that <laughs> is, is one answer. Oh, OK, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 no. But please, 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 much more crucially uh, is that we have got uh, the vital thing that dogs were permitted in colleges. Um, uh, in Zuleika Dobson, right, Max Beer, by Max Beerbohm, uh, it is uh, reported uh, that uh, 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 dogs could easily be chained in the porches of colleges. Uh, then we have um, a specific point. Let me just get this uh, correct, uh, that uh, you have got uh, that University College at the beginning of the 1870s did permit dogs within its bounds. Um, in a letter to the Sherlock Holmes Journal, Roger Lancelin Green, uh, the father of the great Sherlockian and Doylean scholar Richard Lachlan Green, wrote uh, quoted from a Dictionary of National Biography entry on the master of Univ uh, called George Granville Bradley in, 19, uh, in 1870. Bradley was determined to raise the standard of industry and insisted that every commoner should read for an honour school. Some consequent unpopularity was increased by an edict banishing dogs from the college. But he had his way. Uh, thus, we know for a fact uh, that dogs were clearly uh, allowed uh, inside at least that college. Uh, and uh, I, I found in a diary from a, uh, an undergraduate in Hillary term 1871 at University College, Charles Cree, uh, he noted on Sunday, the 11th of March 1871, notice put up saying that dogs would be excluded entirely next term, torn indignantly from the notice board and destroyed. When I had gone to bed, great howlings were heard in quad, demonstrative of the indignation felt by certain members of the college at the notice concerning dogs. So the dog argument uh, uh, can disappear entirely. I think you can also add, um, and I, I may have got the university wrong, I really, really apologise if this is the case, but I don't think I have. What about Byron? Byron had a bigger pet than a dog. Uh, you're, you're beating me. Uh, he, had, he had a bear. He had a pet bear. That was chained in the quadrant outside his door. 
And I think for what I did, again, someone's going to correct me, but I think it's because there was no sign to say that he couldn't. <laughs> well, that would be a very Byronic uh, thing. Yeah, to yeah exactly. Yeah. Actually, that's quite curious because one of the most famous previ uh, uh, previous undergraduates who actually went to university college, although I don't push UNIV as being actually the college, because as I say, I think he went to Sherlock went to St. John's College, Oxford. But at UNIV, um, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley uh, was yep. a, 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 an undergraduate and then sacked from University College, Oxford. Yes. So we have a nice Byronic and, and, and Shelley link with that one college. But I, there, I, I, theirs I don't know about. Yeah, so I, I should point out that. Sorry, sorry, John. Byron attended Trinity College, Cambridge. At oh, sorry, time, sorry, sorry. To the college, dogs were not allowed to be kept on college grounds. So Byron brought 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 a tame bear as a pet, and he argued because bears were not specifically forbidden, they they couldn't do anything about it. I love that. Where have you got John? Uh, where, where is that quote from? What book is that from? Um, so, Dogs were not allowed in at least that college at Cambridge. Well, there's very various history sites here that uh, okay. seem to quote it. Um, oh, the Cambridge actual website seems to have an article on it, so that should be fairly... Oh, well, that's excellent, because back in the day when I wrote my little thing, Sherlock Holmes at Oxford, copies still available very cheaply at... I've heard that. At, at certain <laughs> online stores. Um, the web, websites did not exist. So uh, one had to do one's own research. But that's extremely interesting to know that there is a specific thing that Trinity College, Cambridge, for example, did not permit dogs. Uh, uh, and therefore, uh, uh, Byron was able to do what he did with bears. I, I think you've just won. I think I've, <laughs> I've, I've never I've never doubted for a moment that I'm absolutely no, right. Well, in fact, I guess that. <laughs> Apparently, he also tried to get the bear enrolled as a student. Yeah, well, that's absolutely typical of uh, behaviour by Cambridge undergraduates. <laughs> Especially <laughs> Byron. <laughs> I think this also means that we're definitely going to get Stephen Fry on the next show because he defends anything that does, anything that slightly derides Cambridge. He sort of jumps on it straight away, doesn't he? Particularly if it's for the benefit, for the, for the benefit of Oxford. Um, <laughs> as for, as for the, uh, the, the story itself, it's, it's one of my favourite stories, primarily because, I mean, we do a segment on the show, um, uh, Nick, called um, Watson Watch. And this one really needs Sherlock watch at the same time. So in the first 12 stories, John and I have decided that the only thing Watson really, do really does in terms of action, apart from throwing a, a smoke rocket through a window, is to shoot the dog in the Copper Beaches. Um, and there's, so there's whole, there's whole stories, which he does. Obviously, that's not his job. His job is a literary device. Um, well, is... let me just interrupt. I mean, the glorious Scott is about eight and a half thousand words. I haven't done the exact word count, but most of the short stories are around that. Holmes and Watson have probably had dinner already when Holmes starts saying, hey, Watson, you might be interested in this. It looks yes. like a brandy chat to me. And then they have a chat, uh, a classic, well, it's not a classic Baker Street chat. It's a most unusual Baker Street chat. And what does Watson do? What a hell of a reporter he was. He is yes. taking down, he's taking down verbatim or effectively, I mean, his hand must have been flashing like that uh, to, 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 to keep the notes uh, from what Holmes was saying uh, and ending up with a, a, a well-written, well-constructed, uh, well, rem remembering, remembering all the names, remembering all the, uh, the, the actions that took part in the story. The only thing is that he got the chronology completely um, all over the place. I'm going to bring John in this in a second, but well, I will say that he... Um... He even quotes the the, the, the lat, the latitude 
<laughs> things like that. He's, he's even that basic. Yeah, yeah. John, I'm going to bring you in about the chronology. I, I, was, I was going to ask before that, you know, Watson being a doctor and doctor having notoriously bad handwriting, how did he read his own notes writing that quickly? Did Watson know shorthand, I think is what we need to uh, ask ourselves here. The trouble with Watson's handwriting uh, is it goes back to almost the, the, the very start of um, the Dorothy L. Sayers pseudo-scholarly game. Yeah. It's, it's the get-out. Um, I have never quite used it, uh, but it's the obvious get-out. When dates become completely impossible to put together, you know, we, in the Red-Headed League, uh, you, 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 you jump from April to October. Yeah, it's April and October, yeah. Uh, within, page, within a couple of pages. You, it seems to me perfectly reasonable uh, to, to use it, but you, you don't want to go down that avenue too often. No. On the other, I mean, but for, for example, I mean the chronology, the time element. <laughs> yes. In, 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 in the story, well, as I said, the the dark alleys of writing. Um, Sherlock Holmes chronology is is uh, is horribly nasty to me. I've never gone down them, uh, but I take as my bible in these things, and there are nine or ten now major chronologists, and you know I, I enjoy reading them. I don't quite understand things. I mean, no, I, I, don't. I will, I will, well, no, but I'll take it as read. But if Ernest B. Zeisler has decided, the great uh, American chronologist has decided or researched uh, that the sun or the moon uh, came up at such and such a time on such and such a day, I'm perfectly happy to accept yeah. it. Uh, and that is, that is relevant. Uh, for the sake of the, the uh, Gloria Scott uh, crucial problem, I would recommend uh, a Sherlock Holmes commentary by D. Martin Dakin. Uh, and th the real time problem you have in the Gloria Scott uh, is the mention of the Crimean War in 1855, yes. uh, yeah. which of course is a correct year for the Crimean yeah. War, but it completely screws up uh, the other 30-year difference, which makes it impossible uh, yes. for either the 30 years or 1855 to be correct. And just to cut to the chase, I am perfectly happy uh, to agree that Watson scribbling away whenever he did, maybe he'd had an extra glass of brandy. Yeah, more than likely. And he wrote 1855. Unfortunately, he wrote the word Crimean War, but everything becomes far, far easier uh, if the events of the Gloria Scott, uh, the, the maritime tragedy, the actual events, took place in 1845. Uh, and I would refer uh, your readers, if they have a copy uh, of Dakin's uh, 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 commentary, uh, to go to page 106, uh, 107 uh, and 108. In fact, he, does, he, he spends three and a half pages on it, uh, and you're not going to get a better discussion uh, and resolution uh, of that main problem. Conan Doyle, of course, was very interested in maritime uh, uh, adventures. I mean, Captain Sharky, Piratic. Yeah, absolutely, Bay. yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and, and others, he was, he was quite in favour of the sea. Yeah. I, I think that's because, um, as, as, a, as a, a form of a writer of myself, um, they, they always say, for example, that sitcoms are always, the best ones are always the ones that where someone is trapped. Basil Fawlty is trapped in a hotel in Torquay when he wants to be a member of the aristocracy. Fletcher in Porridge is trapped because he wants to be free and the comedy comes from that. Maritime stories, you're trapped by the world. You're trapped by the ocean. There's nowhere else for you to go and you're in danger throughout the whole thing. So there's the jeopardy. This is just I me talking with my literary theory head on. 
And let's go back actually to one of the most famous short stories that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote well before Sherlock Holmes was invented, J. Habakkuk Jeffson's Statement. Now, you know of which I talk? I it, was so. it was published in the, in the early 1880s, well before 1887 yeah. and Beaton's Christmas Annual. And it was his take on the Marie Celeste mystery which everyone will know about this empty ship uh, that yeah. suddenly appeared uh, with virtually no, uh, nothing uh, disturbed or anything like that, but no crew members. This is a true history. I mean, the Marie yeah, Celeste yeah. really, yeah. really happened. That did happen, yeah. And uh, Conadol invented the character of J. Habakkuk Jeffson, a rather complicated name, um, and wrote such a good, uh, 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 well, sorry, not pastiche, but I mean, a working out of what might have happened in, but it was, I think it appeared in the Cornhill magazine, um, uh, that many people thought it was true. And uh, they, he played on that just a little bit, although of course it was just a complete imagination. And there's yeah. a, a pretty good indication of, of his knowledge of and interest in uh, matters seafaring. Well, Doctor Who will, uh, fans will tell you that um, everyone knows what happens to the Marie Celeste. It's the Daleks um, landed uh, um, on the ship in the story, The Chase, in 1965, I want to say. Um, and that's why they all jumped overboard, so there was nobody there. Uh, so just handled that, that one perfectly. Doctor Who fans are just even further off the scale than <laughs> Sherlock Holmes fans or... J.R.R. Tolkien fans. Yeah. Um, well, the word fans begins to get complicated, actually, these days. Uh, but that's another discussion, maybe, beyond the glorious Scott. I, I would just... The concept of fandom did not exist when I started. No, no. And in um... fact, did, didn't, didn't exist, as far as I'm concerned, uh, until after I had handed over the reins of the Sherlock Holmes Journal. I'm rather glad not to have had to cover uh, the concept of fandom because I don't believe, and this is always very difficult to say, I don't decry them for a moment, uh, but fandom is not quite the same as uh, being a Sherlock, a fan of the, the Sherlock Holmes stories. There's yes. something else going on there. And I'm not criticising Yes, I'd, I'd also like to say hello to Ripperologist at this point and just leave that there without any further statements added to it. Indeed, if you want to talk about some bizarre theories, um, then, then, then there they are. You may know that uh, every year since 2001, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London has played an annual cricket match against the PG Woodhouse Society. Oh, really? At the lovely village of West Wickham uh, in Buckinghamshire. Uh, every now and then, the, the West Wick, the uh, PG Woodhouse people, uh, are pathetic cowards and don't turn up. But, <laughs> but the point is that originally uh, we were going to play the Jack the Ripper Society, or I, I can't remember the exact name, but an invitation came to the Sherlock Holmes Society from the Ripperologists um, some time ago. Uh, and for what it is worth, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm part of the cricket setup. Uh, as an umpire now, sadly not a player, um, I put it to the Council of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and it was squashed just like that. Um, well, uh, female members of the Council of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London did not feel that even 
Oh, on a, I see. Okay. On a, on a balmy Sunday afternoon, that we should play people who were interested in the Jack the Ripper side of things. White Chapel, uh, yeah. I was, I was slightly surprised at that. And way back when, um, I, I knew at the BBC a friend of mine called Andy Aliff, who was a big ripperologist back in the day. And I actually addressed uh, a ripperology uh, gathering a weekend in Norfolk. We're getting well off the subject of Sherlock Holmes. As far as I'm concerned, I was slightly surprised that the view was taken as it was uh, about this cricket match. Obviously, I accepted it and relayed it back to the, uh, the, the, the ripperologist people. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think necessarily, you know, looking at you as I can on Zoom, uh, that you are necessarily uh, dripping with blood and a maniacal killer, uh, Carl. Um, it is Sunday. So, there's you know. the day off there. Yeah. That, probably that would have been when the, the it was the Whitechapel Society, I'm guessing it would have been, when they were back known as the Cloak and Dagger Club and they had like a bloody knife as their logo in the 90s and stuff like that before it became more academic in the uh, early noughties. Um, Carl, Carl might not know this, but a Andy Aliff used to organise the conferences with uh, with Adam. Um, yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah, so it's probably a conference that... Uh, Yes, it was. It was. It was. It was, it was a conference in Norwich. If I knew that, anyway, this is going to be irrelevant yeah. and probably edited out. But no probably uh, won't be. <laughs> I, I was invite, invited because there's an awful lot of crossover. I mean, there's the, the number of pastiches that people have written. Um, I mean, I've already mentioned William Baring Gould uh, at the beginning yeah. of, of this chat. There's an awful lot of coverage of how Sherlock Holmes absolutely dealt with or did not deal with uh, Jack the Ripper, or indeed, oops. Who might have been? Oh, God. Michael yeah. did. Let's be careful. Yes. <laughs> that, that book. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's a, um, let's just say there's connections between the two and the, the I, level I of zealotry that goes involved. I regard it as a completely respectable and reasonable area of, of research. It is, these days. There, is, there, is, there is so much factual stuff going on, of course. Yes. The end results are completely grim, ghastly, and that's, that goes without saying. Um, yeah. And, of course, we know that Conan Doyle uh, was approached uh, to yeah. uh, uh, have, a, have a, a revisit of what was, what was, what was going on. Um, anyway, there we go. Yeah. Um, I just want to touch on one thing. Uh, we're, we're coming up to an hour. That this is a bit of a theme I've had with home stories he distrusts Hudson immediately. And the whole, when from Hudson's first appearance, even when he hasn't done anything other than followed the maid to get beer and onions or whatever he's, he's gone to get from the larder, straight away there's the sense that he is bad. And yes. of course, they make the, the huge point. I mean, Victor, uh, Victor Trevor, like, calls him the devil three times or something like that. And the, yes. so they, they really dig into that. And part of me, but reading it again, obviously, because I've read it so often, and I know what Hudson, uh, what, what he is, and, you know, and it's, all, it's also made out that he's a bit of a coward later on, and Meadows took care of him and what have you. Um, part of me did think, if I read this for the first time, and I didn't know what the, um, what the mysterious... Um, hen pheasants, preservation for life, all that sort of thing meant, would it necessarily follow that 
Hudson had done anything wrong. Because I think, the, for me, there's also a sense that, you know, well, he's wrong straight away, because he's, I suppose because he's justice of the peace. You think, well, he's clearly respectable, and he's very, very scared of Hudson, so therefore Hudson is in the wrong. I'm not sure I would have read it that way had I been halfway through the story for the first time. Well, no, I, 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 I think, in, in, in fact, there's no question that Holmes, as I say, being his son's friend, yeah. and really not a professional detective. In no, because he's not at this point, no. Because he's certainly not at this point, was probably initially slightly deferential. I mean, justice of the peace, etc., etc., was slightly deferential. And uh, there are certainly many other stories which I have written about uh, when Holmes later on uh, in life, not in the 1870s, uh, behaved in a rather um, from top to bottom view, was uh, uses words like peasants and things uh, yeah. about us, etc. So uh, it, it doesn't completely surprise me uh, that he that he viewed uh, Hudson that way. And I think also, um, again, this is a very unusual story. As I said at the outset, apart from this and, and, and the Musgrave ritual, it is the only story uh, that it, it basically is involving Sherlock Holmes telling uh, a vast yes. crack of information that Watson had not hitherto ever heard of. Yes. He, he's also talking about events uh, that, you know, if we're going to say uh, that the, the story of the, uh, the story in Donnythorpe uh, was in probably 1873, four, five, six, yeah. let us say that, um, he's not telling it to Watson suddenly for another 10 years, say, whatever. Um, I'm I'm prepared to allow uh, Holmes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to allow him a swerve here uh, uh, and uh, for him to say, mm, yeah, I, I was slightly worried about Hudson from the start. I, I think that for, for me, this comes as, as the from the, the adventures where and we've discussed this on the show before about how he is so different to certain levels. So he's incredibly rude to the king in A Scandal of Bohemia, which is great, which is a great, great scene. He's happy with that. He calls Roberts in Simon Sir and is practically bowing at him. So there's there are days when he, he wants to be deferential and you know talk about society and you know the, the, the stratum and what have you. And sometimes he doesn't. Well, you know, we're, we're, we're moving into an interesting area of uh, a discussion about Sherlock Holmes uh, in general. Um, you know, I firmly believe that uh, he Holmes was so deranged and put out uh, by uh, Professor Moriarty that uh, he murdered Moriarty and chucked him off the Reichenberg Falls. So that is where I, that is where I come from on that. Holmes um, has got an awful lot of minuses as well as an awful lot of pluses. Which is why we love him. Which is why we love him. And this is, uh, he becomes a sort of a, 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 almost not a fully rounded character because Watson is the, is the, is the classic character and looks up to the concept of Holmes and, and all that and all that we, that we know of. But um, any person who approaches uh, or delves a little bit further into the Sherlock Holmes stories and thinks, hey, the great detective, the master. I mean, the Americans were calling him the master and, and, and of course, uh, writing that Conan Doyle was the agent, the literary agent and all that. But the master, the great detective, etc. There are there are foibles, there are problems. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, it, it is true. It is also his. Well, I keep coming back to it, it is the first story, as in his first real story, and therefore you know his mind is not quite as. Uh, um, I, I want to say closed, and I want to say open at the same time. He's much well, more open to theory later on, but but while being quite closed about it too. 
I, I think there's also, I mean, you, 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 you mentioned the so-called code. I, I can't do a Times crossword or a crossword of any sort. I can't do anything particularly logical. Even I could immediately work out the th that every third word was, was the code in Gloria Scott. So even then, Holmes, I mean, he takes about a quarter of a page of the yeah, story, yeah. Uh, struggling with this. This is the man who later on uh, dealt with the, with the dancing men. Yes. Which was a little, a little bit more complex. Also happened in Norfolk as it happens, but there we yes, go. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, he, he was, uh, but that was for dramatic effect. And I think I, 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 I'm prepared to allow Sherlock Holmes that. I, I, I really like that. Every now and then when I read, I, when I read the stories back, there's a line in them which I absolutely love. And I really enjoyed, there's an earlier story where, where Watson says he's surrounded by a cloud of newspapers. That's one of my favourite lines. I love that so much. And I really like um, that he says the word Hudson in the, in the code screamed at him. I love that. I really, as a, you know, to, to a logician, it's like, ah, now. That's just straight. It's not arbitrary at all. This means something. There is a connection between these words. And that, and that's possibly also uh, from the, spoke, spoken by the person who was able to identify the different uh, typefaces of various newspapers. He words will headlines will scream out at you from a newspaper, yeah. uh, and specific words uh, will, will will do that again. So maybe that was a bit prescient into one of the the later abilities that he had. Absolutely, absolutely. We we are up to the hour. Um, Nick, it's the question I ask everybody. Um, you really, really like the Gloria Scott. Firstly, would you like to come back and discuss another story at some point? We'd absolutely love to have you on. We've loved having you on this show. Well, A, that's very kind. Uh, uh, you're, you're both very civilised about all this, uh, and I, I enjoy it, and you, and you get other interesting guests. I would be very happy to, to do that. Thank you very much. Uh, and here's the big question. Depending on the alphabetical order, and don't leave it too late if you're going in print in publishing order. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, that is true. And the second question, if we took away the Mazaran stone, what is your least favourite Sherlock story? I think I'm going to be uh, fairly, fairly boring. Uh, I think most people are, are less happy with the later stories for various yeah. reasons. It takes far too long to go into. Um, I think I'm not happy particularly with the Three Gables. Uh, uh, no, sure that, that's another favourite one again. I I'm sure others have said this um, for the obvious reason that it's yeah, not a very well-written story. It is not a very well-written plot. Uh, and we all know that, sadly, by the time that Conan Doyle was writing these stories, he was writing for money uh, and the money was going to, uh, mostly from the United States rights, uh, was going to support his, his uh, spiritualistic activities, spiritualism activities, uh, he was being offered, as I'm sure everyone knows, he was being offered a dollar a word back in the 1920s. That's an American dollar in the 1920s, yes. a word for new Sherlock Holmes stories, because Sherlock Holmes sold uh, yeah. in, in America. And therefore, I mean, let's be realistic, uh, Carl, John and I, if you're offered that sort of money, you, I'll write you, it might, now. you might you might just knock off something one evening after a glass of... I'll do it now. No problem at all. Uh, no, yeah, and I, 
the three the three gables doesn't work for me but i'm also i'm sure not allowed since you've received the invitation to tell you the uh, to suggest the uh, story that you would like to ask me about uh, again so i won't no no feel free <laughs> well no i don't i don't want to take the chance away from uh, from other people but there are one or two later stories that are completely brilliant and i have absolutely no hesitation in saying that my favorite uh, is the Bruce Partington plans. Uh, it's my favourite Sherlock story ever, thank you. John's rolling his eyes now at the prospect of this. It's my favourite by an absolute mile. I love it. Well, I will save the obvious um, um, plaudits uh, for, for another day in case you invite me to, to talk about it. But uh, 18, anyway, it's, 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 a, it's a fine story. I, I, I would end this by saying, you know, you're right, you're right, people are critical of the latest stories, but I absolutely love Thorbridge. I love Thorbridge. No question. I like it's magnificent. I, I agree completely. Yeah, it's a brilliant yeah. story. Yeah, but do you do 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 you know what uh, the original title? There were various titles originally suggested for this story. It's the problem, isn't it? Rather than the adventure, or doesn't matter about problem or the adventure. I'm, I'm going to try and get the words right, but it's something like the prob the the adventure of the chip on the bridge. <laughs> now, do, do go and check. Go, Go, do go and check. Uh, uh, I'm I'm fairly sure that I'm right. That in the manuscript, uh, there we are. And if ever, uh, thank God, the editor of the Strand, Greenhouse Smith, and the editor of the Strand talked talked uh, Doctor Watson or Doyle out of that. Because uh, if ever there was a complete disruptor and spoiler, that was it. Oh, no, that's got my mind racing now. Though I'm thinking about Stapleton's Hounds, a far better title than Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to hearing who you will get to talk about the Hound of the Basketballs, because that, of course, is beyond reason a, a, a quite fantastic story, but so much to talk about there. So well, we're, only do, we're doing the short ones to begin with. I think it's very unlikely that we won't do the novels and so forth. Nick, thank you so much for coming on to the show. I've absolutely loved the past hour. Uh, we will definitely be having you on again. Um, I, I, is there, this is, I'm going to just say it plainly. Is there anything you have coming out at the moment that we should know about? I've heard that the Sherlock um, Sherlock Holmes in Oxford is um, currently on sale. Well, no, all, all I was indicating is that Sherlock Holmes in Oxford is is available on things like aid books and in second hand bookshops. So if 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 anyone perhaps were vaguely interested in it, um, I, I I I brought out a thing a couple of years ago, actually called the Controversy. It was a little uh, yep. book in just a hundred signed and numbered copies. I have a very few left. Uh, and it actually, I, I, I don't make a point of it, but I, I sum up the history of the controversy of all the contributions uh, to the Oxford-Cambridge uh, uh, fight. Um, and right. uh, people can sort of uh, make up their own minds. Uh, I, there's an, another thing that is available. If people are members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, they can go onto the society's website and, there's a, a, a book, booklet I have, it's gone into its third edition, uh, <laughs> about the cover artists uh, who John Murray used um, on the editions uh, of the Sherlock Holmes stories from the, the 19 teens onwards right. uh, that, that brought people in. And I, I, I mentioned the anniversary book uh, that the Society has just uh, published. Uh, in, the, in, these, in these days of lockdown, etc. Uh, I don't know whether it's just a blokey thing, but thank God to have had a hobby. <laughs> yes, yes, hasn't that been an absolute godsend? It's great to run a podcast as well. 
Absolutely, I can. People uh, have to say yes. There's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to say that things are easing are easing yet, but uh, we shall we 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 shall see. But I'm an inveterate writer, a plower of these uh, furrows. I've enjoyed it as long as hard copy exists. Um, I'm a very happy boy. Um, I know that uh, everything moves on, and podcasts are brilliant. Uh, and uh, more and more material is appearing online. I don't know how long the Sherlock Holmes Journal will go on. There are certainly no plans not for it to be still a printed thing. My great friend Stephen Rothman, who's the editor of the Baker Street Journal, uh, is intending to go on uh, publishing uh, uh, hard copies as, as as much as possible. And he does it four times a year. I and he have to do it twice. Had to do it oh. twice. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a very interesting thing. I know that I'm overstretching stating my case. Uh, back in 1951, when the Sherlock Holmes Society of London was reformed and started, we approached we. I wasn't. It was a year before I was born. But the founding members approached uh, Sir Sidney Roberts, S.C. Roberts, the great uh, Sherlockian scholar uh, who wrote all about Dr. Watson back in the 1930s, uh, to be its first president. Which, of course, in the end, he did. And um, I've seen a letter that he wrote in reply uh, to the invitation to become the president. And he said, I'm not absolutely certain that a full-blown society uh, is what we want. And we certainly don't want to have uh, a journal. We will run out of material for that very quickly. Wow. Just, just look at the Baker <laughs> Journal. This is in 1951. Uh, so I think with the best will in the world, even S.C. Roberts, before he died in 1966, uh, will have seen that there's a hell of a lot more uh, pips to be squeezed out. Absolutely, yeah. Of, of the stories. Fantastic. And the way that podcasts and other uh, ways of, of spreading the Sherlock Holmes word uh, are going is, uh, is wonderfully good. Yeah, it's good. Well, Nick, thank you so much again. We look forward to having you on soon. And uh, thank you very much. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>